do you believe that Jesus deserves all that you have? Or do you believe that he owes you something? Hey, Cross United, so glad you've joined us for this online message. I want to encourage you, um, if you would want to connect with us, you can go to our website after this message. You can leave a comment in the message comments on Facebook or YouTube. Um, But on our website, crossunited.org, and you can click uh, online check-in. And that'll take you to a digital connection card. We'd love to know how we can be praying for you, um, to get to know you a little bit better, especially if you're uh, someone who hasn't connected us with with us yet in person. Uh, That's crossunited.org and then click online check-in. You can also go to crossunited.org and click give. And uh, we would love to connect with you uh, as you are joining us in this digital format. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in John 11, 55 through John 12, verse 11. So go ahead and turn in your Bible or tap over to that section. Our family, uh, we have a birthday ritual. And uh, we call it birthday on the bed. It's something that started with my family and my parents when I was a kid, and we've continued the tradition. What it is is when, when someone in our family has a birthday, we all pile onto Laura's and my bed, and we put the gifts in the middle of the bed, and the person, the birthday boy, the birthday girl, opens their gifts. And so this past week was our son Judson's birthday. He turned eight. And so at O Dark 30 on Tuesday morning, he comes bouncing into our room, ready for birthday on the bed, ready for his birthday celebration. And his sisters kind of stumble in, you know, wiping the sleep out of their eyes. And we, we gather on the bed, we put his gifts in the middle, and he opens his gifts, his, you know, basketball return that his older sister Adeline got him, and then the uh, the little Lego set his little sister Olivia got him, and then then the big gift from Laura and me from his parents and and he opened it and and as soon as he starts pulling back the paper he sees what he's been asking for for months he sees the t-visor of the unmistakable Mandalorian helmet he's been asking for this for months and he's he's been wanting this Mandalorian costume and for his eighth birthday he finally got it now, kids are, are, are like that, aren't they? They, they, they see a story, they, they read a story, and they, they identify with the characters, and they, they really begin to inhabit that story. And so Judson, you know, immediately pulls the costume up, on, puts it on, and puts the helmet on, and he becomes the Mandalorian. And kids are like that. They love to become princesses and warriors and star quarterbacks and and all sorts of things, using their imagination to become characters in stories either they've read, maybe they've seen on TV, or maybe that they've just made up in their own imagination. Um, They don't need an annual Halloween celebration to become those characters. But but it's not just kids who are like that. Uh, Grown-ups are like that, too. And, uh, and we see that in the way that grown-ups will sometimes get dressed up and really lean into the Halloween time to, to, to become a character and to, to play a character um, that, that, that they are, are beginning to inhabit or temporarily inhabit in, in, in this, this you know, holiday we call Halloween. And, and, and we're like that. We see stories. We watch movies. We read novels. We, we, we hear things and we identify with the characters in those stories. 
Well, in the, in the episode of the Gospel of John, in the series that we're calling the Book of Life, the the we're ex- expounding John's Gospel from from beginning to end. We're we're a little more than halfway through now. We see an episode where where John is displaying a cast of characters, and uh, and just in time for Halloween, he he's inviting us, and the story's inviting us to approach these characters with a sort of openness and a sort of possibility and invites us to become one of these characters or warns us about becoming one of these characters. Previously in the story, um, Jesus has just performed the crowning miracle of his ministry, raising Lazarus from the dead. And it says in 1154 that that he could no longer walk openly among the Jews because the, the Sanhedrin had de- deliberated and determined to put him to death. But he departed from there to the countryside near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim and stayed there with his disciples. So the, the first 11 chapters of John covers a, a vast amount of terrain, both, both geographically and chronologically, in multiple years um, are, are happening in the first 11 chapters of John's gospel, sometimes called the book of signs, because Jesus does these signs that indicate who he is and, and what he has come to do. Well, here now we're transitioning in chapter 12, the end of chapter 11 into chapter 12, and, and John is slowing his story down to a crawl. And whereas the first 11 chapters took uh, multiple years of, of timeline. The, the last few chapters are going to take just days. Um, and, and really, he's slowing down the story. John, the narrator, is slowing down the story in what's sometimes been called the book of glory, where we see Jesus um, going to his destiny, and that is the cross, where he is exalted as the crucified king, the hour of his glory. And, and the final week starts with uh, one of what would have been dozens of Passovers that Jesus had celebrated in his life, one of hundreds of Passovers the Jews had celebrated throughout history. But this Passover, um, this Passover was going to be different. In this Passover, Jesus won't merely eat the lamb of the Passover, but he will be the lamb of the Passover, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look there at John eleven fifty five through 57. Now the Jewish Passover was near, and many went up to Jerusalem from the country to purify themselves before the Passover. They were looking for Jesus and asking one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? He won't come to the festival, will he? The chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it so that they could arrest him. The time has nearly arrived. Jesus returns to his friends to to see in the wake of this miracle, to see them. Um, And and as I've said, this story we're going to see, we're going to see five characters, and John is going to invite us to inhabit and to imitate these characters or warn us about becoming these characters. And, and, and really at the heart of this story is a contrast between two characters in particular and two ways of approaching Jesus in particular. The, the first way is this, this, this sense that Jesus deserves all that we have, that Jesus deserves all that you have. The second 
sense is that we deserve what Jesus has. And, uh, and, and so this is the question. This is the question this, this passage ultimately confronts us with. Do we believe that Jesus deserves all that we have? Do you believe that Jesus deserves all that you have? Or do you maybe subconsciously or secretly believe that he owes you something? This story invites us to find our own story in the proper perspective in our own relation to Jesus through five characters. The first is Lazarus. Look there at chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, the one Jesus had raised from the dead. With the the fourth day of death stench having freshly been washed off of him as he's been raised from the the dead in in John 11, we see this miracle. Jesus calls Lazarus out of the grave. Lazarus wants one thing. Lazarus wants to recline at table with Jesus. Um, D.A. Carson explains that reclining at the table would have been a, 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 a festival or a feast or a meal of unhurried celebration and freedom. And, and the, di- the diners would relax on thin mats around a low table and leaning usually on their left arm and their feet radiating out um, around outward from the table. This was a time to slow down and to celebrate. And, and Lazarus here, his presence testifies to the miracle-making might of Christ. He, he's here as a living trophy of what God can do, of what Christ can do. He's, he's in this, this, he's like a trophy in, the, in, in this display case of God's grace. And he's here witnessing not just to the life that Christ can give, but the life that Christ in himself is. In an important sense, every Christian is a living and breathing Lazarus. Every Christian sits shelved as a testimony and a trophy of the regenerating, life-giving grace of God. Every Christian, you, if you're a Christian, you have a testimony. It's probably not Lazarus's testimony, four days dead in the grave, but you have a testimony. It might be a testimony of what God has saved you from, a testimony of a life of addiction and a life of abuse and trauma, a life of crime, a life, a a, a radical story of grace and conversion and salvation and deliverance. But it also might be a testimony of not being in the depths of the pit and God drawing you out of the pit, but it might be a testimony of God guarding you from that pit in the first place. It might be God, God's protection of you, his care for you, and, and not, not allowing that to happen. Sometimes we think those Christians who haven't experienced those difficult things don't have as great of a testimony, and that's just not true. Because the saving grace of God works just as well in the secret places of hidden pride and protecting from harm as it does in redeeming and saving from harm. Hear the good news. God the Father sent God the Son in the power of God the Holy Spirit to become a human being, to live a life without sin to offer his life as a sacrifice for sin, to be buried and raised from the dead, 
so that anyone who will turn from their sin and trust in him will be forgiven of their sin and given eternal life. If you've never done that, you can do that right now and just tell God, I want to turn from my sin and I want to trust in you. And if you have done that, then you have and you are a testimony. You are a trophy of Christ's life-giving power, like Lazarus seated at the table. Lazarus, come out and tell your own Lazarus story. That is the first character. The second character here in verse 2 is Martha. So they gave a dinner for him. Martha was serving them, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Martha here, Martha's a doer. Um, Martha's active. Martha likes to plan parties and host dinners. Martha can't sit still. Work compels Martha. Luke tells us a bit more about Martha. We're going to see in in just a minute. But we see this, this drive to accomplish is something our culture elevates, something our culture says is a good and noble way to live is something that our culture rewards in many ways. A life of action. Our our culture despises dilettantes who seem to fritter away their time. Teddy Roosevelt said, do things, be sane, don't fritter away your time, create, act, take a place where you are and be somebody, get action. We all love Martha's. Maybe you are a Martha, or maybe you know a Martha. I'm married to a Martha. We love Marthas because Marthas are like superheroes. They get things done. They make our lives better. They work and they serve. But the Marthas also need to be careful. Look at Luke 10, 38 through 42. While they were traveling, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks. She came up and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? So tell her to give me a hand. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice and it will not be taken away from her. You see, in this story, Martha's serving has been turned into bitterness and frustration that Mary's not serving with her and like her. In the midst of Martha's action and her doing and producing and accomplishing, she's missed something. She's missed the Messiah. Martha's obsession to get stuff done can distract from the necessary thing, and that is finding herself in Christ. You might be a Martha. And if you are a Martha, I want to encourage you that it's okay to slow down and take some time with Jesus. The lawn or the laundry, it can wait. Martha, your accomplishments do not define you. Jesus loves you. This you should know because the Bible tells you so. Jesus gave his life to save you. You are not what you do. You are his. And he loves you. Take a breath. 
breathe in life, Christ himself. The third character is Mary. And this is really getting close to the heart of the passage here in verse 3. Mary took a pound of perfume, pure and expensive nard, and anointed Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. So the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Here we see, just as in John, or excuse me, Luke 10, Mary represents a life lived at the feet of Jesus. A life lived with Jesus. Mary can't spend enough. She, she, she can't get herself low enough. And, and here we, we see John is setting up the contrast at the heart of the passage between Mary's worship and Judas's thievery and betrayal. Mary represents the way we should treat Jesus. Mary represents what Jesus owes from us, what we owe to Jesus. We, we sit at the feet of, the, of Christ and we pour out our best. We can see two things here in Mary's sacrifice. And, and the first is that uh, a tendency toward action, like Martha, can sort of pull in tension with a tendency toward contemplation, like Mary. And historically, Christians typified um, Martha as a symbol of the active life and Mary as a symbol of the contemplative life. And, and I think our culture exalts action and action is valuable. Martha's are necessary and Martha's get things done. And, and we, are, we, we talked about Martha's and the need for Martha's to slow down sometimes. Um, but, but I think this story also calls us to assess our cultural's, culture's values about action and production and accomplishment, about what Jesus really values. The world, and even Christians, can despise what seems to be the wastefulness of time simply spent with Jesus. Unproductive time with Christ. And I think we all, we all have tendencies, right? We all tend toward being more like a Mary or more like a Martha. I, I said, I'm married to a Martha and I'm glad that I am because she has this almost superhuman ability to get things done, to multitask, to do stuff. Um, I'm more like Mary. You can see from the the bookshelves behind me. I like to think and contemplate and read and write. And, and, and the Marthas need to remember to slow down and spend time with Jesus. The Marys need to remember that uh, they have to get some stuff done, too. I think this passage calls us to recognize our own tendency. And if, we're if we tend toward action to assess whether we have made our accomplishment our identity and to slow down and find our life in Christ. And if, if we tend toward contemplation, if we tend toward thought and, 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 and reading and, 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 and quietness that, that sometimes we need to kind of spur ourselves into action at times as well. 
Martha's can inspire Mary's, and Mary's can inspire Martha. Doers can inspire thinkers, and thinkers can inspire doers. But that's not really the main point of what's happening here. The main point is this. The main point is that Jesus deserves our sacrificial, extravagant praise. Mary worships four in four ways. She worships sacrificially, she worships humbly, she worships person, personally, and she worships obviously. S- sacrificially, it says, we see in, in the next verses, that this perfume would have been worth 300 denarii, which would have been 300 days wages. In other words, this was an annual salary's worth of perfume. Tens of thousands of dollars in our money. That's how much this was worth. And she just spilled it out on Jesus' feet. No wonder some thought it might have been a waste. Other versions of this account in the other gospels say that it was it was Judas primarily, but the others as well were kind of like, really? Really? Was that the best use of this? This resource? Just gone? With no apparent return on investment? Sacrificial, extravagant. Humbly, she anoints the calloused and leathered feet of this man who walked everywhere he went on the unpaved Palestinian dirt. She recognizes her place in relation to him. She recognizes that he is the king who puts his feet on the footstool of the world, as we see in the Psalms. She recognizes, as I see in Isaiah 52, 7, that these are beautiful feet that bring good news. Personally, she uses her hair to scrub Christ's feet. This would have been a shocking thing for her, a woman in that culture, to let her hair down in that way. And it would have been seen as a sign of extreme, one writer says, extreme gratitude and extreme humility. She approaches him as closely and as intimately as she possibly could have. Not at the reach of an arm, washing his feet, but nearly grazing his heels with her nose. As close as you could be. She serves sacrificially, humbly, personally, and then fourthly, she serves obviously. It says the fragrance filled the room. Everyone knows what she's done with a nose to smell and ears to hear and eyes to see. And our praise and our worship of Christ should be the same way. It should be sacrificial, extravagant. It should be humble. It should be personal. And it should be obvious. It was beautiful. But not to everyone fourth character we see here is Judas. Then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him, said, why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of what was put in it. Judas protests like someone who has too much to protest. He's, 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 making it clear that this is not just about his righteous or self-righteous or false indignation. 
He says we could have done something with that money, which would have been obvious enough. But what we see here, John says, no, he actually didn't care about the poor. He cared about himself. He would skim from the top. He would take a few coins here and there. He believes he deserves it. He believes he needs it. Judas thinks Judas needs a little bit too. And here we're confronted with this contrast between Mary and between Judas. Do we believe Jesus deserves all that we have, or do we believe even secretly that we deserve what he has? Do we believe Jesus owes us something? It's so easy to fall into this trap. It's so easy to think that God, because of his grace and abundant giving owes us what he gives us, but grace is grace because it's not deserved. This hit me recently. I mentioned Judson's birthday. Judson asked for his family birthday dinner if we could grill hamburgers, and I said, of course, I'd love to do that. We were grilling hamburgers, and it's been raining all week here in South Florida, and it was drizzling on on the day of his birthday dinner, and and, uh, Laura's asking me, she's like, it's going to be okay for you to grill, and the you know, with the rain, I said, yeah, it'll be, it'll be fine. You know, unless it's absolutely pouring, um, it will be fine. Well, it had been drizzling all day. As soon as I went out to the grill to put the burgers on the grill, God like overturned a bucket from the heavens and it just poured and wind and rain were sweeping across the grill and the patio was flooding my shoes and my socks were soaked and and the the the, the grill actually was flaming up because the wind was like sparking up the flames and it was just quite honestly um, a less than pleasant experience and i had a talk with the lord and i said lord what in the world I don't deserve this. Don't you owe me? I'm not doing, I'm grilling burgers for my son. Shouldn't you be giving me better weather? Shouldn't you be, don't you owe me better than this? And of course, of course, the answer to that question is no, no, he doesn't owe me a dry day. He doesn't owe me anything. He's God. And he gives graciously and generously. And even in that moment, in his sovereignty and his goodness, he had something for me that I needed, even if it's not what I wanted. But he does not owe you anything. And he did not owe Judas anything. We owe him everything. He deserves everything. That's what Jesus' verdict is on the situation. Look at verses 7 and 8. Jesus answered, leave her alone, for she has kept it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Biblical scholar Craig Keener notes that, that this probably would have been seen as the anointing of a king. That she was, this was a royal anointing. Um, And we see in the next passage, which we'll talk about next week, where Jesus makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and they sing, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the, the, the king riding in to the city. So this was a royal anointing, but the irony was that, as John 19, 19 says, Pilate, when Jesus was crucified, had a sign put on the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, that this was a royal anointing that was also preparation for burial of a crucified king. 
This is a king like any other, who, though he has life in himself and does not deserve to die, willingly accepts death, willingly receives preparation for burial. He's so worth all that he receives, and the time is short, and that's why he says, you'll always have the poor with you but you'll not always have me. He's like, I've got a few days left. The poor will be here when I'm gone. And yes, they will be with you and you can care for them then. But for now, it's focused on what I am doing and what I deserve as king. I'm worth more than any person. I'm worth more than any party. This is for me and I'm worth it. And Mary recognizes it. It's interesting. He says there, you always have the poor with you. Um, Thomas Aquinas says, we are led here to understand the fellowship the rich should have toward the poor. But, but I think too often, too many congregations can make Jesus a liar because we don't always have the poor with us. We don't always have churches that are full of both black and white and old and young and rich and poor, Republican and Democrat. We have churches that are pretty much full of people who are pretty much the same. But that's not the heart of Christ for his church. The heart of Christ is to be a, an ethnically and economically diverse body where the rich and the poor live together. Because we can think, okay, the poor need the rich because they have resources, but you know what? The rich need the poor because it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. The fifth group we see here, the crowds and the priests, in verses 9 through 11. Then a large crowd of the Jews learned he was there. They came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, the one he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests had decided to kill Lazarus also, because he was the reason many of the Jews were deserting them and believing in Jesus. Here we see the fence sitters and the outright enemies, the spectators and the haters, the crowds and the priests. Some want the spectacle, some want to end Jesus. The question is, if you're honest, which character in the story are you? If you open that package, like, like my son did on his birthday, which character would you find? Which character do you truly identify with? Which character represents the way you approach Jesus? As the one who owes you something? Or as the one to whom you owe everything? God designed us for life, an abundant life with him and with one another. But there's a problem. Someone has taken our life. Jesus said the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. We're missing out on life like God intended because we go looking for life in all the wrong places. But there is a solution to this problem. Jesus said he came so that we may have life and have it in abundance. That's why Cross United Church exists, to help people find life like God intended. We believe life like God intended happens when three things are united in our lives. When we're brought to God in wholehearted worship through the cross of Jesus Christ. When we're brought together in authentic community. When we're deployed on the joyful mission that God has for us in the world, we experience fullness of life. 
Life Like God Intended, united in wholehearted worship, authentic community, and joyful mission, is why Cross United Church exists.